Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, February 27th by Tim Voth, pastor of Family Life. Today is the 14th message in our series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. We've been going through a sermon series in Acts called, You Will Be My Witnesses to the Ends of the Earth. And we've seen how Jesus uh, ascended and he filled his apostles with the Holy Spirit. And they've been taking this good news of Jesus from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria. And now it's going to the ends of the earth. And uh, everyone everywhere is, is uh, accepting this message, Jews and Gentiles alike. And it's pretty awesome. And now we're in Acts 15. And this passage is going to be talking a lot about unity. And now Acts, it's written as history which means that it's like it, actually, it accurately portrays the, what happened in the past. Um, and in this moment was a profound moment in the life of the church. It was a history-making, once-in-a-lifetime decision, Holy Spirit-filled, encouraging, joyful, amazingly unifying moment that paved the way for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth uh, without hindrance, without unnecessary hindrance. But before you zone out because it's just boring old history, it's also written as theological history, which means that it actually um, has a purpose and we can apply it to our own present day. And I think that it's actually quite timely to be talking uh, about unity. There's so much division right now, and I think we long for a taste of unity. We know when we taste it, and it's a beautiful thing, and we also know it's opposite when we taste division, and it's not such a beautiful thing. And I just want to share two examples from my own life, two contrasting examples. The first is that when I was uh, kind of a brand new Christian, um, in, in a church I went on a retreat with a few other friends who were kind of newer in the faith as well. And the retreat was great. There was a lot of good content and a lot of good seminars that we would go to and learn a lot of amazing things. Um, so much fodder for joyful discussion and unity and fellowship and worship of Jesus. It was just a, it was a great time. And then we would break off and go into our kind of like cabins or our rooms for the night. And um, what would end up happening is we would end up discussing all of these kind of secondary issues uh, of theology. And it would get really kind of divisive and almost mean. And it became kind of like a, a toxic environment. And it was so sad. My, my um, hope for unity was up here and it just got completely dashed. Uh, I remember even one time just kind of getting up and just walking out of the room. I'd had enough. It was too toxic of an environment. There was so much potential for unity and joy and worship, and, and yet we focused on all these secondary things and just became mean and distracted. And so I'll give you a, a contrasting story, which is that uh, once a month in our community, there's something called the ministerial lunch, which is church leaders from all around the community coming together from different denominations and um, just enjoying a meal together and fellowshipping together. And sometimes we'll actually host it in our church. And uh, the last one that I went to here... It was just an amazing time. It was uh, leaders from leaders and pastors from, from all over our community coming together, different uh, denominations, and we sat together, we ate together, we laughed together, we encouraged one another, we heard about what God is doing through their ministries and other ministries in the community, uh, and we were honest with each other about the struggles of ministry, praying for each other, encouraging each other. And I walked away from that lunch so encouraged and just rejoicing. I felt rejuvenated in my, in my calling and just reinvigorated to keep doing the mission work that Jesus had called me to and us to as a church. And yet there was so much potential for division in that moment because there's so much that we could have disagreed about together. And yet 
there was unity and encouragement and joy. And so what makes the difference? What makes the difference when there's a moment uh, of disunity and a moment of unity? Um, you know, I, I think whatever it is, we want unity. And I think this passage speaks to that. And I think the main thing that I'd like to share from this passage is that when we keep the main things the main things, we can enjoy unity in the shared experience of God's grace and his mission, which is the purpose of the church. So I think this passage is going to show us that unity is possible. What we long for and what God longs for in his church is actually possible. Powerful, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, mission-focused unity is actually possible. It's not easy, and it seems fragile, but it's possible for you and for us, and it's an absolute gift of God um, through his spirit, and we're so dependent on him for it. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's, let's look at Acts 15. But first, just before we do, let's kind of remember what happened leading up to Acts 15. So uh, the Christian movement is happening in Jerusalem, and then persecution happens, and Christians start fleeing everywhere. Uh, they just start spreading out from there, and one of the places that they go is north to Antioch. Some go to Antioch, um, this city up north from Jerusalem, and they, they're just uh, carrying with them the gospel message. So they're just kind of sharing it with everyone. A bunch of them are sharing it with Jews, but some actually share the gospel message with um, Hellenists or like Gentiles or Greeks, and they start believing. And these amazing things start happening where, where Gentiles are believing and Jews are believing. And then there's this church formed in Antioch that's made up of Gentiles and Jews. And Jerusalem kind of, the, the Christians there catch wind of it. And so they send someone, they send Barnabas to just go check it out, go see what's happening. And Barnabas shows up and he's like, yeah, this is legit. This is a, a church and they believe in Christ and it's amazing what's happening. And so Barnabas kind of goes looking for Paul. He finds Paul and they both together spend about a year in Antioch just encouraging the saints, um, growing their faith, and uh, worshiping together in fellowship as a church in Antioch. And so these, these amazing things are happening at that church, and then that church realizes this is so amazing. We want more of the world to know this gospel message. We want more of the world to hear it, and so they want to send missionaries. And as Dave Lee spoke on last week, they pray over Paul and Barnabas. They're led by the Spirit. They commission them, and they send them out. And Paul and Barnabas go uh, to really far away to go spread this gospel message. And they, they go and they see signs and wonders. They do miracles. Um, Gentiles are being filled with the Spirit and believing. Jews are, are believing as well everywhere they go. Um, it's a little intense, too, that some Jews are, are showing opposition. Um, uh, at one point, Paul gets a bunch of rocks thrown at him until everyone thinks he's dead. But then he actually gets up and he goes back to the town that just stoned him and... Um, preaches more and appoints elders and comes all the way back to the city of Antioch with Barnabas. And then they just have like so many stories that they're sharing with the church and everyone is encouraged. Everyone is amazed at what God is doing and everyone's just joyful. There's this like buzz, this excitement. You can tell in the passage what's, what's going on in this church. It's amazing. But that's where we pick up in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, now imagine being Paul and Barnabas. You just witnessed God bringing people into his kingdom firsthand, but there's a group that's calling foul. 
It's like sometimes I'll play uh, spike ball with the life group that I'm a part of. And, you know, we'll have an amazing rally. The ball's up in the air for about a minute. And, and you know, it's going amazingly. One of us scores a point. We're all celebrating. We're all excited. But someone inevitably on the other side goes, ah, 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 ah. No, no, no. It, it hit the rim. That doesn't count. All of that excitement doesn't count. It's not legitimate. And uh, it's such a joy kill. And so all of these people uh, in this group are saying, no, 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 no. None of that counted because they weren't circumcised first. So understandably, Paul and Barnabas get into a massive debate with them. They saw firsthand what God was doing through signs and wonders and faith. Uh, but a certain group, sometimes called uh, the Judaizers, they wanted to speak to the manager because they disagreed. But now imagine being the actual church. You experience God's saving grace. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But someone's saying, no, 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 you're not really in. You don't belong. We belong because we follow the law. You have to follow the law of Moses too. I think it's hard for, for me and for us to understand the weight of this um, controversy 2,000 years later in a completely different context. But in a nutshell, uh, stretching way back to Abraham, which is even thousands of years before this time, before Paul, um, in Genesis 17, God initiated what's called a covenant, or like a, it's like a promise relationship with Abraham, and the sign of the promise was circumcision. Every male in Israel was to be circumcised. It was the sign that you were in. Even Gentiles who wanted to just kind of be with them and eat the Passover with them had to be circumcised. And there were some pretty strong words against you if you weren't. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So very clear words here. This was so ingrained in their lives for thousands of years they wanted to keep the promise of God. And the way to show that you weren't breaking the covenant was to just simply get circumcised. God initiated a covenant with Abraham. It was a new covenant to Abraham. And God in his freedom decided to do it. God initiated and his people followed. And now we'll see that God is initiating a new thing, a new covenant even, and a new marker or new badge to be in the covenant. In this covenant had no external markers at all. But, uh, this new covenant, the old promise was fulfilled, and this new covenant was overshadowing this old one, but they couldn't see that, these Judaizers, or they chose not to, and they wanted to keep their external law-focused identifiers to determine who was in or out, and it makes me think how easily, as humans, in our human nature, we like to divide ourselves so that we can feel more entitled, more moral, and more on the in-crowd than other people. And I think of uh, one children's book. I read a lot of kids' books uh, to my kids before bed. And one of them that I read is called The Sneetches. Uh, now, in this book, there are creatures called Sneetches. Here's what it says. Now, the star-bellied Sneetches had stars, bellies with stars. The plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly sneeches would brag. We're the best kind of sneeches on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. But aha! One creature named Sylvester McMonkey McBean, <laughs> just bear with me, <laughs> uh, comes through and says that they truly can be in the in-crowd, if only they get stars on their bellies as well. And he has this perfect machine for the job. 
So in go the Sneetches into this machine without the stars, and voila, now they suddenly have stars. But now suddenly McBean says, it's much better to have no stars, actually. So the ones who had the stars at the first, now they go into his star-off machine, and so they go around and around and in again, out again. Uh, and each time, they pay him uh, until he walks away rich, and they're left divided, discouraged, and broke. It's sometimes amazing what you can learn from a little kid's book, eh? And so, you know, I think what it's saying is that in, in any sort of division, there are usually people willing to exploit it and increase it for their own gain. In our world, I think it's, we can see it, whether it's social media platforms that are mainly motivated by outrage, you know, the more inflammatory a tweet, the, the more hostile a post, the more outrage it inspires, the more likely it is to be reposted and retweeted. Algorithms that thrive on anger and leave us in resounding echo chambers that further entrench and divide. What about the news? Uh, how much of it is positive? How much do you think it is actually intended to unite, or leaders with intentionally divisive rhetoric. As Christians, I think we need to be shrewd in these matters. In division, there is usually someone or something that profits when we divide, and we ought to watch for it and not get sucked in. But the way, 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 way more important thing is that we as Christians and we as the church, we have a spiritual exploiter. His name is Satan. He's the adversary. And this adversary sees our differences, sneaks in, gives false promises to either side, amplifies those differences as absolutely crucial, and makes make them central to our identity. And there's a big difference between acknowledging that we all have dif differences and divisions and stirring them up. And so he's exploited and he stirs up division and he profits from it by crippling the church until we're left divided, discouraged, and spiritually broke, and the world is left without experiencing the gospel. And so they forgot that in the end, they, they're all just sneeches all along. It doesn't matter if they have stars or no stars. It doesn't matter if the Christians were circumcised or uncircumcised. Their main identity as sneeches became secondary, and their secondary identifying markers became primary. And we can forget that in the end, despite our differences, those who believe are all equally in Christ. So the Judaizers thought these believers needed the badge of circumcision to be in Jesus' family. But now, in this new thing God is doing, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, there's a different sign. And it has no external markers. And so this is serious for the church. This is like a watershed moment. This was a main issue. What is the nature of the church? Who's in? Who's out? And so they needed to hash this out. They needed to figure this out once and for all. And so they put it in the center and they, and they, and they figure it out together. And so let's see how it plays out. Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, and here's what it says. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So we don't know exactly how this looked, but obviously some debate took place. There was open dialogue and discussion between everyone. And finally, Peter stood up 
And listen how much he emphasizes the actions of God here. God made a choice. God bore witness. God gave them the Holy Spirit. God made no distinction. God cleansed their hearts by faith. So God's the one initiating all of this, just like he was in the covenant with Abraham and Moses. He initiated sending his son into the world. He initiated sending the Holy Spirit. He initiated unifying the church and was actively, sovereignly spreading it everywhere. It was him. And in this council, God wasn't just waiting around nervously, uh, hoping that they would um, decide to make Jews and Gentiles uh, be one church. Uh, He was just already doing it. (laughs) He's God. They're not. He made a new covenant. He made no distinction. So why are they? He just gave them the spirit and completely bypassed the Old Testament law. Why? Because he's God. And he's made a new way. And he's decided it. And they could just either be on board with what God is doing. They could believe his promise or not. The church can't direct God's actions, but they can discern them. They were simply trying to understand what he was up to so they could keep experiencing him and validate everything he was already up to. And they needed to switch gears and trust this new promise or else, ironically, now they would risk being cut off from the community. Now, to force circumcision uh, was to part ways with the community of Christ, not the other way around. But this was, this was new for everyone. This was brand new. This is way early on in the church, and so they needed to hash it out and figure out this main thing together, this basic fundamental truth. Now, like I shared earlier, um, debating theology, it can go sideways. And you might think, okay, what is the point? Like, I experience God on my own, and I don't need all this church history and decisions and councils, and, uh, which is a fair point, uh, because like an analogy I've heard, if you obsess over theology as an end, an end in itself, it's like making the mistake of mistaking the great and mighty amazing ocean for a map of the ocean. You know, but a map is still important. Getting core doctrine right is super important so that we can all be on the same page and then experience God together. A map is a composite of experience and wisdom. When we know the map, when we have our basic coordinates and destinations set, Well, then we can set sail and enjoy the ocean together. And this was the absolute core. This is what it was. This was the core that was to help them experience God together. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's it. Anything beyond that for us to be saved is a burden, a heavy yoke, and a distraction. That's the sign. No longer is it external. The badge was faith. Trust in what God initiated in Christ. Jesus came, died for our sins, conquered death through resurrection, and now rules on his throne. And if you trust in that, you're forgiven. Trust in that and you're made clean. Trust that and you're given new life. Trust that and you're welcome into the family. No two tears, no stars or no, no or not. They're all sneeches. You know, there's no circumcision. It's just faith. They're all in Christ period. And yet we're always tempted by the message of external signs and works. We're all always tempted to turn grace into a burden. In a letter called Galatians, Paul deals with this topic in much more depth. He says this, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Remember your conversion. Remember what drew you to Christ. Wasn't it his grace, his unearned favor? Wasn't it his unconditional love? Stay close to that. Keep that absolutely fundamental. You were started in grace through faith by the Spirit, and that's how we'll finish the race and run the race. That's how we'll persevere to the end. And when you keep that central to your experience, you will find others who experience the same thing, and you'll find unity. Okay, so now everyone has fallen silent. Everyone's thinking of these things. And then Barnabas and Paul tell all of their amazing stories that they were telling to the Antioch church. And then James, one of the heads of the church, uh, he speaks, and he quotes the Old Testament. And if you flip back to, to Amos 9 and 11 to 12, uh, where he's mainly quoting from, you might notice that it's a little bit different. Um, so he might be combining a few different Old Testament passages, uh, but he might also be potentially using a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But regardless, the main point is that God is doing something new. But it's not as if he didn't warn us or let us know ahead of time he was going to. The whole Old Testament was pointing to a fulfillment and the Gentiles were being brought in. And again, God is doing something. God is doing something. I will return. I will rebuild, twice he says. I will restore. He makes these things known. In light of God's new action, the new covenant, he says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The matter is becoming settled. They have successfully understood what God wanted them to see, and theologically they've landed on the main things, the essentials. But it's one thing to settle on something theologically, and that's where we must start. Whole nother thing to live that out practically, real in community, with massive diversity of opinion, experience, history, tradition, and so on. And so he says this. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted with idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, now wait a second. Didn't they just settle the matter? No works, Gentiles in, grace alone, faith alone. But therein lies the tension of community. How do you live out the freedom you have in the gospel while loving your neighbor? How do you live out the main things when there are so many secondary things? The Gentiles didn't need to become Jews, but the Jews didn't need to become Gentiles either. And one commentator put it like this. At at a later stage in the narrative, we see that the problem is no longer the demands being made on Gentiles to become Jews, but the pressure being felt by Jews to conform to a Gentile way of life. This pressure must have been considerable wherever Gentile believers came to outnumber Jewish believers. So it was settled, uh, not two churches, not Gentiles becoming Jews, not Jews becoming Gentiles, but one body in Christ, one church, and that's great, but practically that gets tricky. That's where the tension is. Now, I think all these extra instructions, they were kind of just a way to sum up uh, pagan temple worship that was going on. Often, Greeks would go to pagan temples, and they would have worship services there to different gods, and there would be all sorts of abominable practices there, like sacrificing meat to the gods, and temple prostitution, and orgies, and like pretty horrible stuff. Now, some Gentiles might have still wanted to go there, maybe not to participate necessarily, but 
because it was ingrained in their way of life. It was ingrained in their culture and maybe they had friends there and family there and all sorts of stuff. And James is saying, look, it's, it's going to be hard enough for the Jews to, to kind of swallow this main point that, you know, they don't have to be circumcised and they're in the covenant. The least you could do is add extra unnecessary offense. Look, they'll accept that you don't need to be circumcised, but you've got to bend a little bit too. And so what is this in Scripture? A compromise? Maybe. A concession? Maybe. These weren't laws. They were instructions designed to help the Greek Christians in their own walks with Jesus. Staying away from these things really would be beneficial to them. Um, But they were also designed to keep the lines of fellowship open. They were all bowing to God, but they were bending to one another. John Stott said that the Jerusalem Council secured a double victory, a victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace and a victory of love in preserving the fellowship by sensitive concession to, content, to conscientious Jewish scruples. So, essentials. The, the church is made up of people who trust in Jesus. Jews, you have to accept this. Gentiles, secondary things. It's probably wise to bend a little bit on some of these for now so that you can kind of keep some, some grease on the gears of fellowship. And I just love, I love how in the real world this section is. Like it shows that the church has always been this way and we should not be alarmed if we feel tensions in our current day and age. Look, as a church, we've, we've been through this and I think it's good as a refresher. Rod took us through a sermon series called Truth and Grace. If we stand on the absolute truth not budging, no concession, no acknowledging the other person on the other side, well, then we miss grace. And if we're all grace and we give in on fundamentals like, okay, okay, we'll just get circumcised, you know, we don't have to fight about it, we'll just, fine, we'll give in, then we miss truth. And Jesus came full of both, and he calls his church to be full of both. Now, here's the real miracle, I think, of the Jerusalem Council. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Then it seemed good to the whole church. When does that ever happen? <laughs> like ever. This is a miracle of unity on the absolute fundamentals. So that they write their letter, uh, on what, outlining what they decided, and so they go to Antioch. These four men, they go to Antioch with the letter, They tell the congregation there the decision, and they rejoice, and they're encouraged. This is just such an amazing moment. This was a turning point, landmark decision that set the trajectory trajectory of the rest of the church to the present day. Here's what one commentator said. Um, After the satisfactory resolution of the important doctrinal and practical issues raised by the Judaizers, there was a notable advance in gospel work. And so this follows a pattern that is seen a few times in Acts, which is there's conflict, There's resolution, and then there's gospel growth. The sun was dawning on these early Christian churches, on the early Christian church, and they were coming to see clearly who they were and what their purpose was. And through each major decision, the gospel kept expanding more and more. And so they they read the letter to the church in Antioch, which is a great letter. Um, It's concise. It's to the point. You should read it. It's right there in the text. Um, and, and the church is encouraged, and they keep learning and growing. They got the main things right. They got the main things settled. And now they could experience more grace in their shared mission to continue to be a witness to the end of the earth. Church, 
we've got to keep the main things the main things if we want to maintain the vision, identity, and mission of the church. There's a famous quote in church history that goes way back that says this. and You may have heard it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I think it's a challenging but a good exercise to list things about our faith and life and try to kind of slot them into these categories. The things that are absolutely fundamental. Without these, there's no Christian faith. And the non-essentials, everything else that we can debate about. Things that are still really important, and I'm not downplaying their importance uh, or our need to even come to our own understanding of these topics, but they're not in or out of Christ topics. So I'll just, I'm just going to list some topics uh, that, that are maybe essential or non-essential. The identity of Jesus, the literal death and resurrection, the Trinity, how to be saved, the gospel, uh, modes of baptism, end times ordering, Genesis as literal seven, six days of creation, number of sacraments and ordinances, ordering of church government, color of the carpet, lighting, hairstyles, political leanings and opinions, length of sermons, music style, forms of government, Calvinism versus Arminianism, liturgy, papal succession, inerrancy. You might have opinions on all of those. You might not know what some of those words meant. That's fine. But I'd suggest we keep the list of absolute essentials pretty small. Deity of Christ, Trinity, literal death and resurrection, and how to be saved, just to name a few. For the rest, would you believe it if I told you that there are people in our church who hold different views on these things? Now, there's a time and place to sift through all these and to have open dialogue with fellow believers and even land on them with conviction. You know, like, go, have conversations about them, dialogue with grace and love, but keep this question in mind whenever you do. What is absolutely fundamental for us to be saved, to know God, and to live out his mission as a collective of people who know him? C.S. Lewis uses an analogy that I think is helpful. Uh, picture us all in a hallway. That, that's where all the Christians gather to say, we, we're in Christ. But there's rooms on, coming off of the hallway where we, where we land on the non-essential issues. You might call those rooms local churches or denominations. This is where you tend to find the real kind of world-bending and concession that is necessary to make real-life fellowship happen with enough agreement to not get distracted with constant arguing about how to do, how to do what. But we can't live permanently in either. We can't live in a hallway. You know, that's not where the chairs and the, and the lamps and the coffee are. It's just, that's the hallway. But we must eventually choose a room. But we can't just stay in our rooms either, or else we forget that other rooms exist and the hallway exists. Now, one more story that I think illustrates this point well. Our church is part of a mission here in our town called Afternoon Adventures. It's a collective of currently 10 different churches, all partnered with different schools in our community. They're all different denominations, all working together for the shared mission of Jesus, to love the staff and teachers and to love the kids in our community, to show them the unconditional love Jesus has shown us in the hopes of loving them to Jesus. Now, we all have our own churches where we worship, but we come out into the hallway for the shared experience and mission of Jesus. Look, we're limited in our resources. We're limited in our time. 
We could spend our time together trying to convince one another of, of non-essential issues, but instead, we acknowledge our differences, bend to one another, bow to the Lord, and, and try to do his work together, and it has a kingdom impact in our community. And I should say that if you feel called to something like that, you can check out our website and you can actually sign up to be a volunteer at Afternoon Adventures. Now, church, please hear me. When we keep the main things, the main things, we can enjoy unity and the shared experience of God's grace and his mission, which is the purpose of the church. Like, look at the theme running through the, the whole chapter. It's joy, it's enjoyment, it's experience. Paul and Barnabas go to the council, um, bringing joy to all the believers, all the brothers. The greeting in the letter they write um, literally means we wish you to rejoice. When they heard the letter, they rejoiced. Why? Because God is at work. And, and our theology, our conversations, our gathering, it isn't, it isn't um, it's meant to bring encouragement and joy, not discouragement and division. The church kept the main things the main things, grace through faith. This news freed them up to spread the gospel and to continue to experience God together and to enjoy fellowship with one another. And once they got their core theology and identity right, they could keep learning and growing and reaching the world. So Sardis Fellowship, I believe that we are continually on the cusp of either a great harvest or a great distraction. Putting first things first, remembering our core calling as a church, or putting secondary things first, forgetting our core purpose as a church, destroying our unity, losing our calling, and tarring our witness and effectiveness. We don't know how to do unity perfectly. I don't. I have no clue how to bring unity to this whole broken, warring, lost world. But you know who does know how to bring unity? It's the Holy Spirit. And when he has his way in our hearts, he begins a tiny little seed of work that grows into unity with others. The kingdom is like a tiny seed. You know, we've been given a glimpse of ways forward in this passage. Prayer, dialogue, humility, bending, bowing, trusting, moving forward. They set the course for these main issues. Let's hold fast to them. Let's be people of unity. Let's not give the enemy a foothold. Let's get the essentials right get the practicals right, live in tension with each other, bear with one another in love, and keep living out the mission of the church. So as you go into your week, let this principle guide you in your conversations, your decisions, and your community. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I've got a little bit of homework for you too. Try to write out two columns. Essentials, non-essentials. And just start writing topics in each that you think belong in each. Share that list with someone else and discuss why you placed what where. It's a good exercise. And then in light of that, pray through how you will act when in conversation about topics in either column, about essentials or non-essentials. Pray that you'd be guided by the Holy Spirit, determined not to lay extra burdens or troubles on one another, intent to bring encouragement and joy to one another. And so I'll end my sermon here with a quote from someone from the same town of Antioch only uh, about a century later. His name was Ignatius of Antioch, and he said this, Hence it is that in the harmony of your minds and heart, Jesus Christ is hymned. Make of yourselves a choir, so that with one voice and one mind, taking the keynote of God, 
you may sing in unison with one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father, and he may hear you and recognize you in your good works as members of his Son. It is good for you, therefore, to be in perfect unity, that you may at all times be partakers of God. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.